Hello, like a fam. <laughs> uh, I am Katie uh, Dranick, now Ijen, and this is my husband Ben. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm married up. Uh, we serve as missionaries here through Lake Avenue in South Africa, where we focus on leadership development and missionary care. So thank you for standing with us as we serve there. We really appreciate it. Uh, please join us. We are going to be having a luncheon today in the Sky Room, which is Hutchins Hall 400 after this, where you can hear more about our calling and our ministry. And we would really love to see you there. Our scripture today is Daniel 3, 1 through 25. Let us stand for the reading of the word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? If you do not worship it, you will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered a furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of his strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
Thank you, Ben and Katie. Ben, everybody in the church is, you, you know that Katie is deeply loved here, and now you're in my heart too, so we're really going to be praying for you guys as you head out to uh, South Africa again. And remember again, there's going to be a, a luncheon up there to hear what they're doing. It's pretty exciting stuff that's going on uh, after church today. But stay for the rest of the service, okay? <laughs> All right, you've heard Daniel chapter 3. I want to pull back some statements about God that this... Um, megalomaniac uh, despot said. What kind of theologian was Nebuchadnezzar? So here we go. Verse 15, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And then later, verse 29, there is no other God who can save in the way Israel's God saves. I want to keep those two questions up there. I imagine that those of us who come to the 11 o'clock service, that you mostly would agree with the way that I, that I respond to those two things. Uh, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand, he would say. And what would you say? The God that we know is the maker of heaven and earth. He makes kings. <laughs> he appoints them and he removes them. The God we know can rescue us from your hand or any other hand. Wouldn't you say something like that? And to the second one, there is no other God who can save in the way Israel's God saves. We would say, well, there is no other real God. And yes, he can save, and I would want to add, and I've experienced it because I have found salvation for my sins through faith in the Lord Jesus. Wouldn't, would, would you say amen to those kinds of answers? All right. I... I um, most of us, I think, have come to worship here this morning at, at this service because most of us would confess or profess that we have a personal relationship with the maker of heaven and earth. We enter into his presence with confidence and call him our father and that that's come about because we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus. So when you think about those kind of claims, what we're really claiming is there is one God and you come to know him through Jesus. And Jesus himself said that in John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father, talking about the, the only true God. No one comes to him except through me. Now, when you think about that, aren't those very exclusive claims? There is no other God than the God of the Bible. And the only way you can come to him is through faith in Jesus. Those are the things that most of us as followers of Jesus hold to, but I'm telling you, if we believe those things, it puts us at odds with the place where God has located us right now. Here in uh, beautiful, sunny, 21st century Southern California, where the only thing that is uh, not tolerated is this kind of intolerance or this kind of exclusivism. And the fact is, it, it always does create tensions when you have someone who holds with deep convictions that there is only one God, there's only one way to him, then you're living among a lot of other people that they say, well, where does that put me? They, they, they feel we're arrogant by holding that sort of a view. They're offended by our contention that we have really come to know the one true God in a genuine way. And that, that what's suggested is you need to know him too. You need to be rescued too. I'll tell you, it's always been this way. Uh, any people who hold to that kind of exclusive claim that there is one God, he is to be known, fall into this kind of place where it's awkward to know how to live within the world that God has put you in. And it was certainly true for these three godly, young Jewish men that we read about in Daniel chapter 3. They've been carted off 
from their own home country there in Judah, where we would have almost all Jewish people, off to this huge LA-like, <laughs> uh, multinational, uh, diverse ethnically kind of a, a city like, like Babylon. And we have to see how are they going to live for the God that they say is the one God over heaven and earth in that very, very pluralistic city. I think they have a lot to teach us. So let's, let's take a moment and think about the setting here. The episode that we read about in uh, Daniel chapter 3 happens just after King Nebuchadnezzar has this troubling dream. If you weren't here last week, the, the king had this, this dream of a big statue, and he, it frightened him. I'll put the picture up here so you can see it. I'm looking to see if there's any fright in your eyes. It frightened him. It kept him awake at night. And so he told all of his so-called uh, dream people to come in, and they had to tell him what the dream was. And then they had to tell him what the interpretation of the dream was. The only one, the only one who could do it was Daniel himself. He did both. Told him the dream, told him what it meant, and it left Nebuchadnezzar just sort of amazed. He's saying uh, at this what he called this mystery revealing God of the Jews. Chapter 2, verse 47. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream, if you put that statue back up there, had been of this huge statue with a head of gold, which was his kingdom, and then as you went down along the chest, it was silver, and then on down you found bronze, and then into the legs you had iron, and all that rested on these feet that had clay in them. Well, this isn't all that lasting, in case you wonder. So in the dream also, a stone comes and hits right at that vulnerable spot, and all of those kingdoms represented by those metals come tumbling down and are absolutely blown away. So if you've got that, our text today, Daniel chapter 3 flows directly from that dream scene. The way I read it is that Nebuchadnezzar um, was bothered by this revelation that his kingdom was going to be replaced by some others. And no matter how long they stand, it's all going to be blown away by this other kind of a kingdom that must come. And it seems to me he takes this thing up as a personal challenge. He is not going to let this thing happen. No, he, he thought that he had the strength, as you know, this, this world emperor kind of a person to undo that prophecy. So what I find happening here in the early part of chapter 3 is Nebuchadnezzar trying to find a way to unify this kingdom. It's not just going to be the gold head, which was Babylon. The whole body was going to be gold. And I can assure you of this. There was going to be no clay in those feet. <laughs> so that's where we come to today. He thought he could build a kingdom strong enough that it could resist this stone that was going to come and strike. So I believe that the king erected this statue as a practical way to try to unite all of his people. Because he was defeating all these other kingdoms. They, people were coming in from every nation that he, had that he had defeated and besieged. They were coming in, and he wanted them to be one nation. And he seemed to think that one of the things that could unify otherwise very, very diverse people would be to worship the same God. That was his intuition. And I, I think that intuition was right. I think most of you know that even as I think about what God's trying to do among us, bringing together people from so many different places and different backgrounds, that the thing that will unite us in the midst of all the things that could divide is the Lordship of Jesus Christ so that we keep our eyes on him and it has to be the Lord Jesus has revealed in this word and what his word teaches and that that can hold us together. So that was the intuition that Nebuchadnezzar had too. 
The only problem was he had the wrong God. He, he thought he could make this God. What kind of God is that? You make it, you set it up. You, you'll see that the, uh, the Jewish boys didn't like that all that much. So he built this nine-story tall statue and put it out in the plain of Dura, walking distance from Babylon. So I, I went online and I found there's a building exactly the same height as that statue was, right, right over here on Los Robles. It's the uh, Pasadena office tower. Have, have you seen that? Go by and see it. That's how tall this statue was. And it wasn't very wide. It was about as wide as one section of that. But you can imagine as they would go out into the plain, that was a pretty impressive gold statue that was there. And he commanded that all people in the kingdom, regardless of where they had come from, should bow down before this statue. And can't you imagine that that had to have created a crisis of decision-making for those who believe that there's only one God you should bow before, like these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We often wonder where Daniel was. I wish I could answer that. I imagine he had risen so high in the kingdom, he was off to another part of where the king was. I'm guessing that, but Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were there. And as we look at the way they navigate this tension of how to hold on to the one eternal God in the midst of that um, pluralistic society, I think I see them in the two major parts of this story addressing the two problems that you and I continue to have to wrestle with if we're going to hold faithfully to what we believe about God and how we are saved in the midst of a society that is very pluralistic, such as we have here in Southern California. And they are these. Number one, the problem that you're going to encounter is one of intolerance. And the second one is the problem of pain, sometimes mocking, unjust suffering. So the first has to do with the statue built. The second has to do with the fiery furnace. So let's go quickly to those. Number one, if we hold on faithfully to what we believe about God and Jesus, there will be a problem of intolerance that we're accused of. So how do we live in a pluralistic world? with our exclusive beliefs. And notice this one phrase, we will not, O king, serve your gods, or we will not bow down either to that golden image you have set up. Now, again, you have to realize that Daniel and his friends were not the only young men who had been transported from their home areas to come into Babylon. He had been besieging nations all over the place, and he would take their best young men and bring them into Babylon to try to indoctrinate them and make them think like Babylonians. So they, when they came, they brought all of their gods too. And so you had all these gods from people who were coming in for leadership roles, and they had to be added to these countless gods that were already there in Babylon. So when Nebuchadnezzar told them that everybody had to bow down to the statue, he was not telling them that they could not worship their own gods. Instead, what, what, he, what he was trying to do is to have one thing that was an all-embracive representation of all the gods made up of the people who were there in Babylon. It was sort of showing the spirit of Babylon. We have all these differences, but we have this one thing. All of your gods are contained in this statue. Uh, to bring them all together in this, he did a huge celebration, uh, so many dictators like to do to try to show how great they are. And that's what this thing was. That I, I didn't put all of the verses in because two times Daniel takes the time to tell us all of the dignitaries and celebrities who are going to be there. This thing was going to be big. 
kind of like we see in our own world with um, dictators like in North Korea with uh, Kim Jong-un. I, I put one picture up here of this, but sometimes you've seen others. Not only the military people, you often have, have their weapons that are there and you have dancers out there and you have music that is playing, all saying we have the greatest leader in the world. This thing went at least that far. They had, I mean, if it were Dow, who, who, Jerry Brown would be there, I, I can tell you. And probably our mayor would be there. Probably the big stars, LeBron would be there, and, and Beyonce and, and Drake would be there, and Roger Federer, if you're a tennis fan like me. Everybody who is anybody is going to be there for this celebration uh, because it's going to represent the greatest of all of Babylon. And the amazing thing, too, when you read this is they had every possible music instrument. Three times he keeps quoting that because he wants us to know how big it is. So you have to envision when you read this text. They're there in Babylon. This has been set out on plane, and so they're all going to march out together. So you have to imagine the music playing, the people marching, the, the people dancing, the people shouting, and it all had to do with declaring, we are all Babylonians. We are a part of the greatest nation in the world. And I imagine he wanted them to say, and we have the greatest king too, of course. See, since this um, statue was to represent all of the gods, and this was going to identify them as true Babylonians, not to bow down to the statue. It would have been tantamount to treason. It would have been, I refuse to pledge allegiance to the state. And the question is... <laughs> How did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resist this? I don't know. Can, are you, can you put yourself in their shoes? What would you do? Uh, I, I think we'd be, be tempted toward compromise, don't you think? That's what I think. Um, I think we would say something like this. The Lord has put us in these places of prominence because that's where they were. They found favor with this king. And there are other Jewish people come. And what's going to happen to them? They, we're here. We can represent them. God, I know you want us to be here. And we better not do something that, that jeopardizes us being here. Or maybe even added to that or as a part of that, they might say, well, here's what we'll do. Uh, we'll go ahead and bow the knee, but we won't bow our hearts. We're not going to do that. Well, the only problem with that was was the Bible. I mean, because, because the Bible, they, they had in the main, there were a lot of things they disagreed about too, but they had in their, their main constitution, in their statement of faith, such a clear statement about this that you couldn't possibly miss it. Uh, I want to, it's in the Ten Commandments, so I'll put it up here so that you won't miss what they had to wrestle with here. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God. Boy, not a lot of wiggle room <laughs> with that. And I think I'd be tempted to hide, <laughs> but they couldn't hide either. They had been promoted to these places of such prominence that there's no way that they could be missed. In fact, some of their own colleagues that apparently they had been promoted above them. Some of the other astrologers and the people who are wise people had become quite jealous of them, I think, because probably because they'd been promoted over them and they concocted a plan and brought it to the king that ended up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being sentenced to execution. So what did they do? 
and there are just two things I want you to note. They obeyed God. Not the king. They obeyed God. Number two, they dealt respectfully with the people in their world and in their society. They held those two things together. Number one, they obeyed God. So the king called them in. He was supposed to you know, throw them in the furnace immediately, but I think he sort of liked them. And it's like he says, I'll give you a second chance, but this time you're going to do what I tell you to do. And that's where this phrase comes in. If you do not worship the image, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Again, I ask you, what would you have done? Uh, I have to tell you, I think for all of us who follow Jesus and seek to give witness to him, we will have times like these. It might not be quite as clear and definitive as this one was, but I think you all will find times where you know that there's something that God would have you to do or to say, to represent him, that you feel the pressure sometimes of the friendships around you or perhaps the pressure at work that you might lose a job or a promotion. Sometimes it's in the university where you might just be thought an unthinking fool. I mean, there's all sorts of times where you are called upon to give profession to the fact that you have come to meet God through faith in Jesus. You'll find yourself in places like that. And I'm just amazed when I looked at, at this, how clear these young men gave witness. It was, their words were at least as clear as Nebuchadnezzar's threat. So here they, here they are, verses 17 and 18. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, I, that's worthy of a whole sermon. Great phrase in the Bible. Even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. It's the first thing we have to know, that when God shows us there's something he would have us to do, we simply must obey. But the other part that I see is that especially when they have this king that they've been serving, throwing them into a fiery furnace, and they have these other people who work alongside of them, concocting these schemes to throw them under the bus, they still deal respectfully with the people in their world. It's really clear when you read this that Nebuchadnezzar's view of these young men was very positive up to this point. But when they really hit something, he had a nerve here, when they declared unequivocally that their God was the only God and he is greater than you are, O Nebuchadnezzar, it made him furious. I don't know if you've noticed the last several weeks how often he got furious. He seemed to be a rather volatile man, but this time so furious that sort of as a knee-jerk reaction, he had his executioners, you know, rev up that fire sevenfold. But in this situation, after they were rescued from it, and they were, they were promoted, the amazing thing to me is they seemed to continue to serve with the people alongside of them. Would you have done that, or would you have said, get rid of these people, throw them in the furnace? I mean, what would you have done with that? They continued to serve alongside, and they continued to serve this king, the one who had thrown them into the furnace. I think, as I look at this, how do we live in a world like that? where we identify ourselves so clearly we belong to Jesus, but at the same time really treat with respect and graciousness 
those who might even mock us and sometimes do it unjustly because of our faith. And I don't know, I've, I've thought a lot about this, what I wanted to share with you. It seems to me there's a part of our discipleship, our growth in Christ, that we need to pray that God would develop more and more in us as, as we grow. And that is a combination of, of greater courage together blended with, with humility. A blend of the courage necessary to be faithful to God in this world when he calls us to be with a profound humility that is necessary if we're going to deal with people who just irritate us or accuse us and deal with them graciously and kindly. See, their challenge was and ours is to be able to live in keeping with our convictions and not to be ashamed of them while still respecting others as God respects all people. <sighs> How do I learn? How do you learn to do this? I'll tell you as I continue to pray that I can grow in these matters, that you'll know I want to do it. It seems to me I've got to keep my eyes on Jesus. Um, he shows us the way. Uh, he declared just before going to the cross uh, that no one comes to the Father but by me, and he was willing to go to the cross so that we could come to the Father by him. So when we see Jesus on the cross, we see the one who proclaimed that no one could come to know God except through faith in him, while at the same time we see him bleeding, serving, dying, offering forgiveness, even to those who reject him and crucify him. That's the problem of intolerance. It seems like we need to learn to obey God when we sense what he would have us to do while at the same time continuing to show his love and graciousness even to those who come around us in opposition. Which, which brings me to the second part, the problem of pain. Um, how do we deal with the unjust suffering that almost always accompanies faith in the Lord Jesus? The king ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. So I'll tell you what we see here, <laughs> Daniel chapter three, we see three godly men in going through what we call unjust suffering. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised that they do. Uh, those who have been faithful to Jesus have always found that the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of light will always clash with the darkness that tries to keep it away, and it's still happening. Do you know that we have so many of our brothers and sisters around the world who are going through severe opposition and persecution simply because they follow Jesus. If you'd like to see the stories, and I've talked about this before, haven't I? If you go on to two websites, either persecution.com or persecution.org, you can just read the ongoing stories of what our brothers and sisters are experiencing. All I want to say is this, don't be surprised when difficulties come. We know that our, our commitment when we follow Jesus is to be faithful to God, and we know the clash that that brings. But the question that always arises when we see young men like this, perhaps having to go into a fiery furnace simply because of their faith, why would God allow that? Why would a God who is both good and loving and on the other side all-powerful allow such godly young people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to face a fiery furnace, much less already be thrown into it. Now, I you've already heard the story, so I, I know you're already thinking, but they, but they were rescued from it, and they were. <laughs> so I'm going to read you that part so you don't miss it again. The fire had not harmed their bodies, verse 27, nor was a hair of their head singed. That's amazing. 
Their robes were not scorched, and there was not even a smell of fire on them. But please know that they knew quite well that this is not always what God does. Uh, when they talked to the king, they said, our God is able to deliver us from this and from you. But they didn't say he always promises us to do so. And I especially, as I told you, I love that phrase. Even if he doesn't do it, we're going to be faithful to him and worship him alone. Think about, think about these young men. They had been there when their city of Jerusalem was besieged. I am so sure that they had seen family and friends killed. So they knew that you don't always get rescued out of the fiery furnace. So the real question that I had here is, when you and I are put into difficult places or times, especially simply because we're following Jesus, what do we hold on to? What changes that? And I'll give you the three things I see in this text. Uh, perspective, uh, providence, and presence. Three Ps so that you can remember something from this sermon. All right, one, perspective. We believe that death is not the end. Therefore, that's the worst thing this world can throw at us. But we believe that death is not the end. Never be surprised when fiery trials come, but please remember that as a follower of Jesus, the greatest and final enemy in this entire world, death itself, has already been overcome by the one who is the Lord of our lives. So, amen, amen. So I keep thinking, if these three young men who lived before Jesus lived, died, and rose again, could hold on to God being greater than these difficulties, surely we can because we know that death itself has been overcome. Let me just give you the words. I use them at Easter, but they fit here so well. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul said, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Doesn't this bring up this question, are you in Christ? You gotta make sure right now that you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus. When you are in Christ, I'll just tell you, it changes everything. It gives you a hope-filled perspective for anything that possibly can happen. Uh, the persecuted church has two, generally, has two favorite books in the Bible. They are Daniel and 1 Peter. This, this text is one of the most beloved by our persecuted brothers and sisters. So I'll take you over to 1 Peter 4 to show you one of the things he said here. Don't be surprised. 1 Peter 4.12. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. It's a Christian perspective. Providence. We believe that God is at work in this world. One way that I've seen a, a secular mindset coming into the American church, and I think it affects communities like our own, is this. It's that mindset or worldview that assumes that everything happens. In fact, indeed, everything has to happen according to fixed natural causes. Um, and they usually do. 
Can't do your engineering without things happening according to fixed natural causes. But you gotta know, when we believe in the kind of God you and I believe in, we believe this, this is our Father's world. And that all that happens in our world, in our nation, in our state, in our church, in our lives, all that is in his hands. And that, that he can intervene, he can step and make things different. We use the word providence for this. I love the word. We use it to speak of the reality that God, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in this universe. Do you believe he does? Even those tough times? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were so aware of the fact that they had no might to save themselves from this powerful king. But they accepted this sentence without any despair because they also believed that God had a plan. <laughs> he could rescue them, but he might have something bigger and better than that, and that the real battle is the Lord's, 2 Chronicles 20, 15. And they were resolute that even in this situation, if God were calling them to give witness to him and then to die, they would trust that plan because there are no coincidences in the kingdom of God. Okay, problem of the perspective, the providence, and presence. We believe that God is with us wherever we go. He's not just out there working out a plan. We believe he is with us wherever we go. So, you know the story. The king's guards threw the men into the f furnace, three of them. But what a shock. The king looked. Do you guys see four men in there? <laughs> where, where that, uh, so my eyes, something bothering my eyes here. Do you see four? Yes, and one of them looks like a son of the gods. So I'll ask you, Lake Avenue Church, who was the fourth man? We're at Lake Avenue Church. You must be able to guess what I think, uh, <laughs> it doesn't really tell us, but it's clear that this was the very presence of God himself. And I just joined together with so many Christians throughout the centuries. It sure seems like this is a pre-Bethlehem uh, coming of, uh, of, of Jesus Christ. He'll be there. As your pastor, I never want to deceive you by telling you when you leave church, because you showed up at church, you're not going to have to endure times and situations where you feel the heat of this world. Because following Jesus is not always easy. Can I have a witness? Furnaces come and furnaces go in this imperfect world. But the question is, who goes into the furnace with you? I'll just tell you, the God that we meet through Jesus in the Bible is the one you need. This is what he does. He, we, we believe in him. He enters into our lives. He's the God who participates with us. He sent Jesus into this world. We place our faith in him. We talk about receiving him into our lives. So when that happens, he isn't a God who just operates from far away. We, we know him as Father, as Abba. We can enter right into his presence and know that he will both forgive and he will also be there to strengthen and guide us. You, you need to know that God didn't rescue these three men in Daniel 3 by keeping them from the fire, nor by going in and sort of pulling them out of the fire, but going into that fire with them. They had to go into the fire 
but they were never alone. The same thing is true of you. Um, so I'll tell you. Sometimes, because we hold so doggedly onto this truth of the Bible, there is no other name given under heaven or why people can be saved except the name of the Lord Jesus because we hold on to that. Sometimes we'll be mocked or scoffed at or viewed as unthinking or intolerant and rigid. I pray you'll find the courage to be faithful in your witness and in your obedience to God. And I pray that you'll find the graciousness and humility to be able to deal kindly, that your life will be a blessing to those around you even if they don't embrace your faith. And sometimes, the second part, it's going to feel like you've been thrown into a fiery furnace. When you are there, I'll just have to tell you this, God has a way of showing up in good times, but in my life, the clearest times that I've sensed them showing up have been those times when the heat is on. We go through fiery furnaces and he is there. I, th I think he's there in the California wildfires. What do you think? Are you praying for, for so many going through those that they might know the presence and that many might experience some of this rescue of God? He, he's there in emergency wards. He's, He's there, Chris and I experienced him in a neonatal unit in such a profound and real way. He shows up in university dorms. He shows up in prison cells. He even shows up in funeral parlors. For there are no God-forsaken places in this universe. So I'm gonna leave you with these words. We've been reciting them all morning, but we need to end with them as well. They're found um, in the book of Isaiah chapter 43, you have to realize Isaiah writing this was writing 200 years before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were going to have to face the fiery furnace. They knew that book. And I imagine these words were resounding in their minds as they were facing this trial. And I pray that as you even remember anything about this message and you go through one of those very difficult situations that you will hear God's words speaking to you in this way. Isaiah 43, 1 to 2. This is what the Lord says. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And it will be, as it was with them, it will be to his glory and to your joy. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, now, as you have used this word in the lives of so many of our brothers and sisters through history, as you use it to encourage our, our brothers and sisters being persecuted even now around the world, use these words to speak to us, Father. I have no idea what those who are sitting in the worship center today, what they're going to experience when they go from here. But I'm sure some will face some very difficult times. They will not be alone. So, Father, make yourself known. Guide them. Give them the courage with humility that is needed to give witness to you and to be at peace. 
And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.